Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. Welcome to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. As always, this is Yoni Rosenblatt, and today I'm excited to have Dr. Dries join us. We're going to start just by learning a little bit uh, about Dr. Dries' background, and then we're going to dive right into ACL reconstruction, but not just any ACL reconstruction, ACL reconstruction in the elite level athlete. Um, but first, we want to hear about Dr. Dries. Well, thanks, Yoni. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, thrilled to have a chance to sit down and chat with you. Um, I'll go back to uh, college. I went to college at Penn State. I majored in pre-medicine, uh, which probably wasn't the best decision overall. But nevertheless, not that I don't enjoy what I do, but just that it really limited um, career opportunities from that point. Uh, I went to medical school at Penn State. I did my orthopedic residency at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. And then I spent a year at the University of Pittsburgh doing a fellowship in 2002. So I started in clinical practice in Charlotte for two years, and I've been in Baltimore since that time. I've been at MedStar since uh, 2013, so almost 10 years now. Um, and just, you know, taking care of athletes, and, and uh, that's what I like to do, recreational athletes, higher-level sport athletes, be they high school, collegiate, professional, club sport um, you know, athletes have similar demands, similar interests. Um, I think, uh, you know, taking care of athletes at different levels obviously has some different considerations, but, um, but for the most part, athletes all have a great motivation to return to play, and it's just a thrill to take care of them and, and try to help them to meet those uh, expectations that they have. Yeah, and, and I totally agree with you. Obviously, it's one of, one of my passions and our passions at True Sports. I'm all ready to jump into ACL reconstruction in the elite athlete, but I want to back up one second. What would you have majored in? I think if I could go back, I probably would have broadened out and majored in, um, you know, something like uh, non-biologic, something like literature or history or something that probably would have given me a very different perspective. Uh, I was actually an engineering major for three years, so... Uh, I've always been sort of very based in science and math, um, and that's what led me to engineering, but then ultimately made the transition. But I think at this point, you know, with the ability to reflect back, I, it would have been really interesting to major in something completely different. Yeah, I, t I totally get that. Um, I was kinesiology, and I think back and I'm like, what else would I do with kinesiology, right? I was kind of praying I would get into graduate school. I probably should have done business. I thought you were going to say business. Mm. Oh, that would have been good too. Yeah, I mean, I I find that to be of interest as well. I've done some uh, some business class work since graduating and found that to be fascinating. So that would have been another good choice for sure. And the period in history that you would have studied? Uh, well, you study all of history. I mean, if you're if you're going to learn about history, you study all of it. So okay, but um, one that interests you? Uh, I mean, I would say the Industrial Revolution. Um, certainly the late 1800s, early 1900s. I'm sure you could have gotten a degree in just um, that. No. Yeah. I mean, I, th I find some of those, uh, some of those characters to be fascinating. I feel like that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, but it is. It is. Different audience. But we could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's talk about, um, ACL reconstruction. Cause I know way more about that than the industrial revolution. Um, tell me, is there any difference 
in the way you would repair an ACL in an NFL knee, an NFL athlete's knee versus a high school cross country runner? I think the answer to that is yes. And the reason that the answer to that is yes, is that, um, you know, I think there's, you have to be willing with ACL reconstruction, obviously using autograft is going to have better chances of success than using donor tissue. That raises the question of where does the graft come from? And that raises the question of what are you most willing to accept afterwards? So, um, you know, the risk of re-injury is the one of re-tearing the graft is always the one that everyone mentions first. But in reality, when we look at ACL reconstruction and we look at the significant number of athletes that are not able to return to the same level of play, there's a lot of different reasons for why that happens. And I think all of those represent different modes of failure. It's not just the graft failing. It can be a lot of other reasons. And, you know, it can be anything from persistent instability to meniscal deficiency, to cartilage loss, to donor site morbidity, to loss of range of motion. I mean, lots of different factors that can figure into it. So all of those are potentially means of failure. Um, and that's an important conversation and an important part of the decision-making process with athletes of different level. You know, the high school athlete has a different demand than the college or professional athlete, just because we know it's really in our youngest athletes that the risk of re-injury is the highest. So I think those are the athletes where that risk of re-injury certainly is paramount. Um, and as athletes get older, the risk of re-injury becomes less, and some of the other risks can become more. So uh, I think a balance of, of the risk-benefit ratio there is important, and it varies from athletes of different sport and different ages. Okay, that, that's such a far-reaching answer. Um, I think it highlights a few things that I wanted to hit on, which are, um, well, let's just boil down the answer to that question. What are you using to repair the NFL athlete's knee? So, I mean, I think at the highest levels of sport, clearly the patellar tendon graft is is the by far the most accepted graft source for that. And that comes largely because of the implications of re-injury. Um, and I think there's different, there's different factors at play there, but clearly the patellar tendon has the lowest risk of re-injury, maybe by 5 to 10% in some populations versus soft tissue grafts. But I think with patellar tendons, then you have to also manage more effectively some of those other factors that I talked about that can affect return to play. Most athletes at that level have the best physical therapy services available to them, so they're going to be able to manage it better than maybe another athlete who doesn't have that as much. But I think, I mean, that's what's important about, about true sports and, and places that really focus on sports medicine is offering these types of high-level physical therapy to athletes of all different levels. But I think, I mean, in many respects the quality of the physical therapy. I tell patients all the time, the physical therapy choice you make and the quality of experience you get is going to be as important as the operation in your success. Well, we appreciate that. We don't hear that enough. So I think that's really awesome and telling. Let me push back a little bit because you said something interesting there, which is the NFL athlete has the best physical therapy at their disposal. And so that would lead you to possibly or more likely than not use a BTB, use a patellar tendon graft. Um, let's I was going to say this for the end, but looking at return to sport rates for the NFL, you and I had this conversation recently. Share with us what you remember from that data of the chances that that NFL athlete tears an ACL and returns to the field. 
I mean, the, the data that exists on that suggests that 30 to 40% of NFL athletes do not, in a sustained way, return to play for a prolonged period of time. So that it, chance of return is 60%. Chance of return is about two-thirds, yeah, for, uh, 60% to two-thirds. Um, the chance of re-rupture of the graft is actually pretty low. That's in the 5 to 10% range. So that begs the question, well, why are so many athletes having a hard time returning to play? And that gets back to many of the other things that, that I mentioned earlier, which are all modes of failure. Like those, if you're, if you're an athlete of any kind and you can't return to play, that's a failure. Uh, whether your ACL graft feels like, you know, if you have a stable Lachman exam or not, that's a failure if you can't return to play. So there's many modes of failure. Um, and I don't think that any one of them is necessarily more important than the other to the athlete in terms of the fact they still can't return to play. For sure. So um, I think a deeper dive into why that exists is important. So let's talk about that. Why do you think? Why do you think it exists? I mean, obviously, listen, they're trying to get back to this insane level, right? So the chance that they can return to such a high demand, you would think, is a little bit less. What's the, what's the statistic that you hear most common in terms of non? professional athlete that returns to previous level of function would be what? Well, that's a higher number. Um, it's a much higher number. In part, in large part, because the demands are not the same. Exactly. It's not because they get better yep. physical therapy. It's because their demands are not the same. Right. Um, so, you know, many of those um, recreational athletes uh, are going to be able to return in some capacity what they wanted to do. Some of them lose the interest in, in returning to the same sport. There's different reasons why they seemingly have more success. Yeah. But it, I think the biggest reason is clearly that the demands just are not the same. Right. So, so if we're looking at the NFL athlete, you said a couple, you said a number of things might preclude them from returning to previous level of function. One of which being the insanely high high level of function. What else is on that list for you? And what are we doing as a sports community to tick those things off the list? Yeah. I mean, if we look at if we look at um, studies and and outcomes, um, clearly the the status of the meniscus and the cartilage are the two other areas that are most often cited as as impairing the ability to return to play. So meniscal deficiency, um, either on the medial or the lateral side, um, and chondral damage. I mean, clearly having more significant chondral loss within the knee impairs the ability to return to play. So th those are the two things that I think are most often cited. Um, I, I personally think that some persistent rotational instability of the knee plays a not insignificant role there as well. And that it also leads to higher rates of further meniscal damage, higher rates of meniscal repairs not healing, and by the same logic has to affect the ability of chondral lesions to, to have successful outcomes too. I think it's also interesting, those, those are great points, um, how many surgeons ballpark are operating on these NFL knees on the regular? How many surgeons? Uh, I mean, I think it's a relatively small number. Small number. Um, I think it, the the community of the NFL, um, I think, uh, has a relatively small number of providers that that take care of these athletes, and and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, experience is a big part of it. Um, I think past success in those athletes is obviously an important part of it. It's just a different decision-making process, I think, when your career is dependent on having successful outcomes versus um, folks in, in the community or at lower levels of sport that maybe are 
are not as dependent on that. Everyone wants to do well, obviously, and, and we want everyone to do well. But I think when your career is dependent on that, it's, it's a different decision-making process. Do you think because of this lower uh, return to a previous level of function in the NFL athlete uh, than I would have expected, do we start to see more um, or different procedures being implemented like the ALL, like meniscal repairs, like cartilage transplants? Do we start to see more of that with that initial ACL uh, rupture? Well, I think over time we've certainly seen the um, – the interest in meniscal preservation increase in high-level athletes. So historically, I think there was a belief that repairing the meniscus led to prolonged recovery times and a longer time to get back on the field at an important point in an athlete's career. But over time, we've seen those, those meniscal removals lead to shorter careers, less capacity for sustained return to sport, and now more and more interest in preservation. Um, that has certainly been one one really big switch. In terms of ACL reconstruction, I think the patellar tendon has largely been the graft choice in, in high-level athletes for a long time, and it has stood the test of time with respect to that. The anterolateral ligament conversation really pertains more to the pediatric and adolescent population historically, because that's where it's been used. The last five years or so, there certainly has been more and more clinical data that suggests that in adolescence and, and maybe even in some athletes who are beyond adolescence into young adulthood, that if their knees exhibit certain features, that they would likely benefit from that as well, just from the standpoint of controlling rotational instability of the knee. And certainly, um, I've seen that clinically in, in outcomes in patients, just in terms of the stability of the knee and the way in which it the way in which it stands up the rotational force of the knee, that that makes a big difference. But it certainly is not the standard of care at the highest levels of sport. But I think we hear and, and we see more and more reports and discussion about potentially translating it to that group as well. Um, so I think I personally believe that we will see that become more the standard of care and moving forward. But at the highest levels of sport, I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. But certainly in the adolescent population, we, we are there. That is the standard of care in, in our patients who are most at risk, who are largely, um, you know, just having reached at skeletal uh, maturity and just beyond skeletal maturity. So those are largely our, our high school and early collegiate athletes. So tell us a little bit about the ALL because um, I finished graduate school I always get this wrong. I think, oh, eight. I finished grad. So apparently there was no ALL in 2008. Um, I just looked it up uh, earlier this week. It was discovered in 2013. So tell me what the hell the ALL is, what it does, and how you repair it. Well, it's it's actually been um, the, the contribution of the lateral side of the knee to controlling rotation has actually been a part of a part of knee reconstructive um understanding for a long time, it, largely in the pediatric population, the iliotibial band has been used for decades, really, in, in either um, isolation of reconstructing, of dealing with ACL insufficient knees, or in, in the augmentation of other forms of other strategies of ACL reconstruction. So it's been around in that population for a long time. I think in terms of defining 
the specific ligamentous structures and the capsular, the Kaplan fibers, the anterolateral ligament on the lateral side of the knee. That's been a more recent, um, I think, better understanding, and that results from some anatomic studies and some biomechanical studies looking at what effect it really has on the knee and and clinical studies as well showing its effect on the pivot shift and rotational instability and how reconstruction of those structures either when using the iliotibial band or a free graft can actually help to control rotation better, which is now translating more into clinical studies showing less risk of ACL re-injury, the graft rupture, better chance of meniscal healing. So those things I think are, it's an important part of the evolution of our understanding. And it, it just simply goes back to what I talk about a lot, which is that, you know, we have to evolve as clinicians, um, and we have to we have to be better. So we learn from these experiences, and I think it we adapt our our practice to to best incorporate that knowledge. I think the anterolateral ligament in the last five to ten years is probably is without a doubt the best example of that. I think going back before that, it was the transition from a transtibial technique to an anteromedial portal and ACL reconstruction and being more anatomic with the femoral tunnel. All those things represent. Uh, an improvement of our of our technique and ultimately of our outcomes, and without a doubt, the anterolateral ligament I think has has shown that to us in the last few years, and and we see the results clinically now as well. I think it it's really telling to the sports PT to hear that because you know if you picture me coming out of graduate school graduate school in 08 and rehabbing ACLs for the first two three four years let's say before anyone's doing these reconstructions like you're describing it certainly with the ALL at least we're racking our brains to figure out well why did this one re-tear or why did this patient not get to the level we thought we don't have all the access necessarily that we should to the OR and what is happening in there and that's why I think these conversations are so important because a PT is just not going to hear of such things or um, the way that doctors are evolving in the OR, it's so important for the sports PTs to hear that. So one, they can make the right recommendation to their patients, but also to say, maybe this is why it's failed and this is how we're going to get better about it. There's so much of that that has happened in our world clinically. How do you stay abreast of those changes in your world? Because there are definitely people, Dr. Dries, that we know that are not learning about fill in the blank, ALL, meniscal reconstruction, they're doing the same type of procedure they learned in 2000, in 95, or whatever. How do you stay up to date with these things? Well, I think, you know, it's important to stay engaged in the learning process. Uh, I serve as the co-director for our fellowship. I'm involved very much in research, um, clinical and, and uh, biomechanical research. But it's, it's a, just a commitment to, I think, learning and evolving um, adapting, like I said, um, it's just a matter of, of being involved in that process. And, you know, I don't think anyone can look at historically ACL reconstruction and say that we're doing the best job possible. I think clearly when, when you really sit down objectively and look at the data, you say to yourself, we need to get better. And I tell athletes all the time, you know, it's not a good thing to tear your ACL. It's just not that that's not a positive predictor for your athletic career but it's not necessarily something that you cannot get past and succeed and move forward. What's important for us is that we continue to sort of improve in ways that helps that process to take place. But, um, you know, the, the concept that somehow you tear your ACL and you come back stronger than you ever were before, 
that's a really high bar to try to set for for anyone. Um, but I think particularly for young athletes who are, you know, at a stage in their career where they're starting to look at college and looking at playing sport at a higher level, it can be a very challenging time to to deal with the injury and the recovery. And ultimately, if there's disappointment that exists, it's it's really difficult. So, um, you know, I, th- I think that, that it's just a conversation that is a lengthy one with athletes. Um, for, you know, you would say that, that a physical therapist doesn't know what happens in the operating room. I would say that a, an orthopedist doesn't know what's happening in physical therapy. So I, agree. I, I do this operation, you know, I feel great about it. We, we feel like we did a great job. And then the patient goes to physical therapy and I don't see them again, you know, f- for sometimes, you know, a week or more, and then it'll be a month every month after that. But there's so much that happens between those visits that I don't, th- that I don't have access to, that I don't know a lot about. And that's where the line of communication is important. But I think we both see it from different perspectives. Um, and the more sort of cohesive that that experience is for the patient between the therapist and the orthopedist, I think it gives them a better chance of success for sure. But we, we both have sort of a... Um, you know, a view of it from one side of the experience. And, uh, and the more that we can do to try to bring that, you know, into a more mutual experience, I think the better. Yeah, I think as sports PTs, we stand to learn a ton from your side, right from um, the orthopedic side, the medicine side. I would also say the other way, um, not just you learning from us, because I know you thought that's where I was going. But I was going to say from the strength coach side, um, really getting better at our craft, sports rehab, from looking and learning from outstanding strength and conditioning specialists. How do they teach movement? How do they teach change of direction? How does that play into what we know from the pathology side? That, that's been a game changer for us at True Sports to better our, our field. I bet you there's a ton there from the sports medicine side as well that could look at that and understand that performance enhancement. Um, just worth, worth kind of thinking about. So if you thought about the, the ALL as the most recent um, addition, would you say, or uh, enhancement? Of I would say improvement, certainly, of our understanding of successful outcomes. Okay. What do you, if you're looking down the road, what do you think is next with this ACL reconstruction surgery in the elite level athlete? Do you have any idea? Well, I mean, the other thing that that deserves mention here too is is sort of revisiting the whole concept of repair of the ACL versus reconstruction. So, um, we're talking about success with reconstruction, but obviously, repair has some enormous potential upside if we can have success with it. Um, How close are we? How close uh, are you? I I think that the the data shows that there certainly are some ACL tears that are amenable to that conversation. Um, and I think in moving forward, we'll find that probably more and more patients acutely are, are candidates for that. And, you know, I mean, the benefits of, of that are, are not insignificant from the standpoint of not having to harvest the graft, potentially having a ligament that works in a more physiologic way, um, potentially, you know, having just having a ligament biomechanically that does more as well, um, there's some big potential benefits to that. So my sense is in moving forward that we will see that that has more application to what we do. It's never going to be applicable to everyone probably, but 
what we find in looking at different tear patterns is that many of these tear with similar patterns. They're largely proximal injuries. Um, and for some of those, giving some thought to repair is, is a reasonable thing. Um, you know, the, the data from decades ago that suggested 50% or more failure rates, that's not what's necessarily being encountered now. So, you know, I, I think there's some thought to be given to it. I don't think we're at a point where it applies broadly to the ACL tear population. But, you know, we're close. now compared to 10 years ago, I think there's much more reason to be optimistic about that. Talk to me about um, partial tears. First of all, are those a thing? I've heard that being an argument that either it's uh, ACL deficient knee or not. So have you seen partial tears in high-level athletes return to previous level of function? Let me stop there and let you answer that. Yeah, well, I mean, the concept of partial tear really refers to the fact that the ACL has two bundles. And in some athletes, member, you know, people in the population in general, they may tear one of those two bundles. Um. Now, for me, it comes down to whether the knee is stable or not. So if, you're, if your knee is stable, then certainly observation and rehab is, is the right choice for that. If your knee is not unstable, and typically it's going to be rotationally unstable, then you're going to still be at high risk for having further injury and difficulty in return to play. Um, it's very difficult on, I think people try to evaluate that on MRI all the time. It's very difficult to reliably evaluate that more completely on MRI. Um, I think obviously you can you can make some conclusions based on MRI, but I think more important is the the functional status of the knee and whether or not the ACL ACL is functioning more normally both in translation and rotation. Um, and whether or not, you know, with that we can predict whether whether the knee is gonna be able to perform at a high level um, with just uh, with just rehab there. But you th- do you think in the next five years, 10 years, we're dealing with situations where we will, where you will be able to repair a torn ACL and have that athlete return to previous level of function. Uh, I think for some, we probably will. The, the tears that are most amenable to that are the tears that are simply peeled off the femur. So the ligament is essentially normal. It's just peeled off the femur. There's actually no portion of the footprint that remains on the femur and reducing and repairing that with some, you know, some healing capacity has shown some promise. Now, how those are going to perform longer term, I think, is open to debate. Uh, we don't know the answer to that for sure. But certainly, there have been examples of athletes who have returned to play following amenable repair of those types of tears. So uh, it's not to say that there's no clinical evidence to support that. But we just don't have longer term data that that suggests that, that it would function that way. Um, but you know, to be determined. Yeah. Do you, do you ever think that there is a new gold standard for reconstruction on top, uh, replacing the BTB? Um, I think in terms of reconstruction, probably not. The BTB has just proven to be the most effective. So I don't see anything on the horizon from a reconstruction standpoint that would largely replace that. There's other options for sure. Um, but, I, you know, there's a couple of trends that I think are really undeniable. First and foremost, the use of allograft leads to higher rates of failure in young and middle-aged athletes in particular. Lots of studies have shown that When's definitively. When's the last time you used an uh, I just simply don't unless it's – if it's a multi-ligamentous knee injury and we just simply don't have enough graft sources – 
but in young athletes, I will typically go to the other knee if they've already failed in, in the same side. So I'll typically take graphs from the other side. And there's good evidence to support that that leads to better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the use of allograft in my practice is really reserved to patients who've suffered ACL, PCL, lateral-sided injuries. I mean, instances where there's just too many ligaments that are damaged to be able to use all of your own tissue. Okay, so talk to me about quad tendon. Talk to me about hamstring tendon. What populations are using that? And will you put those into elite-level athletes should they ask for them? Yeah, I mean, I think those are both soft tissue graphs. So just from a biology standpoint, um, you know, soft tissue graphs rely on soft tissue to bone healing, which is less predictable than bone to bone healing, which you get with patellar tendon grafts. So historically, that's been believed to be the reason why we probably see higher failure rates with those types of graphs. Um, they each have their own challenges. I use hamstring graphs um, on a regular basis in, in people that are at lower risk or even in people who've had bad patellar tendonitis or had some real anterior knee pain issues before, because no doubt those will get worse after harvesting a patellar tendon graft. Um, you know, the quad tendon is a soft tissue graft as well. Um, there are certainly studies that have shown some levels of success with it, but it still biologically is a soft tissue graft. Um, and and each one of those grafts obviously has its own potential downside, upside it's a balance with them, but I think essentially you're either getting bone-to-bone healing or soft tissue-to-bone healing with different graft types. Mm-hmm. Okay, changing gears a little bit, um, but touching on something that, that we said previously, which is that PTs have a limited knowledge of what happens inside of that OR, and I think it would uh, behoove all of us to spend more time in that OR to learn from you guys as to exactly what's transpiring. But for some reason, your ACL reconstructions seem to do better than other surgeons. I'm going to submit that because I see all of them. Tell me why you think that is. Well, I think you have a more interesting perspective on that than I do because I don't largely see a lot of ACL reconstructions from from other providers. But, I mean, I think s- some of the things that I do differently, I really minimize tourniquet time as much as possible. Uh, I'm, I do not like using tourniquets. Um, I personally think that it has a negative impact on a lot of different factors, but um, for patellar tendon grafts, for instance, I try to really limit that to 15 minutes uh, just in terms of harvesting the graft itself. So remember, we're novices in the OR. Tell us, uh, define tourniquet, like what goes into that? How hard is that sucker gripping the leg? What is normal tourniquet time? Yeah, so I mean, uh, tourniquet is basically applied to the upper thigh Uh, before the case starts. And when it's inflated, it's typically inflated to 300 or 325 millimeters of mercury. Um, And, you know, tourniquet times can be, the the historical literature and belief is that anything under two hours is acceptable. I would say for most ACL reconstructions, it's probably an hour or maybe a little bit more than that if you're keeping it up for the entire case. Just so there's no blood? What's the purpose? The purpose is just to facilitate viewing uh, arthroscopically. Yeah. So why don't you need it up for an hour? I mean, I think if once you really gain experience in arthroscopy, you can control visualization without a tourniquet up. How do you uh, do it? You need, to, you need to manage inflow and outflow. You need to manage the amount of fluid that's being taken out of the joint by the use of the shaver, which removes 
torn tissue, but you need to be able to manage that in a way that it doesn't, you know, bleeding is, is dependent on several factors. It's dependent on the, the pressure of the inflow. It's dependent upon the out, the amount of outflow, but it's also dependent upon the patient's blood pressure. So if they have an elevated blood pressure, they're going to, in general, have a more, you're going to have more difficulty viewing without a tourniquet up. That blood pressure is controlled by a lot of different factors, one of which is pain, uh, and the use of regional blocks can help to manage that as well. Some of it's dependent on underlying factors. Patients with underlying hypertension, other factors like that are going to negatively impact your ability to control that better, but the ability of, of the anesthesia team to keep the blood pressure at a manageable level near sort of you know normal systolic blood pressure is certainly going to help from a visualization standpoint. And you have that conversation with the anesthesiologist, say, listen, I need you to keep it here. How does that work? Yeah, I mean, we, we use blocks routinely. Um, most the patients get two blocks. Uh, they get an adductor canal block and they get a popliteal block. So that really helps to control their pain. It limits the amount of anesthetic that's required, the pain medicine, the narcotic that's required. So it has tremendous benefits and and it's a, just it's an ongoing conversation with anesthesia throughout the case to make sure that we're that our visualization is good um and you know that's a partnership in and of itself um that, are, that are just those, helps to manage that that's fascinating because i never would have known about that are those nerve blocks standard issue pretty standard now yeah i mean i've used them routinely for 10 or 15 years at least um but i think yeah they're they're pretty standard with acl reconstruction um, okay, but and they're safe, they're reliable. Um, yeah, they're definitely standard of care to use regional blocks for ACL reconstruction. And so you think your tourniquet time, you know your tourniquet time is a quarter of some other doctors? Well, I think for people that keep it up for the entire case, it, it would be you know probably an hour. Um, but I, for just keeping it up during the... I'm not doing the entire case, I'm just taking the graft out, which is the beginning of the case. So... Uh, that generally is going to take about 15 minutes. So that, I think, that probably, I, I believe that helps in managing quad recovery, um, just the, you know, the negative impact of what having a tourniquet up can can imply. If you put a tourniquet up on yourself and wait for 15 minutes, tell me what that feels like, and then leave it up for another 45 minutes and tell me what that feels like. That, that 300 level that you're talking about is, you know, we do blood flow restriction and we're living in the 120 to 150s and patients are like grabbing at their knee, you know, like trying to get, get out of that tourniquet. I can only imagine what double is. Um, that's something that we would never know. I can definitely say that your ACLs come to me the next day. So that's one. First of all, you make sure they come to me the next day within two days for rehab. Two is they are able to get terminal knee extension with their quadriceps almost fully engaged 24 to 48 hours later. I have to believe it has something to do with that tourniquet time. Is there anything else that you're doing differently to allow for a better outcome? I think, I mean, some of it I think is, is probably pain control too. I mean, I think trying to manage the pain at the surgical site is, is important also. And pharmacologically, there's different ways to do that. Um, that plays a role. But I think also just really counseling people about the important, you know, the important features afterwards of getting elevated, get some cryotherapy on your knee, get terminal extension. I mean, those things just make, I think, everything less painful and help you to progress faster. So no doubt that, I mean, there's a lot of different factors that figure into 
pain and recovery, um, some of which are controlled by by me, by anesthesia, but some of which are patient factors too. Um, and I think all of those have an effect. Yeah, I will say that patient comes in, the quicker they can get to passive terminal extension, the less anterior knee pain they have when they engage at quadriceps. And I think that's another vote for get those patients into us early. And then to the therapist and the PTs listening to this podcast, do not be scared to push that knee into terminal extension so that that quad can hopefully be fully engaged and take pressure off of that patellar tendon graft site, um, I think goes a long way. I think that's something you do differently too. Um, I know we've touched on it in the past, but kicking your patient's ass to get into therapy um, is super helpful to them. Um, in the long run, they might not love you in the short term, but certainly in the long run, um, I think that's that's gold. Like that's totally worthwhile to to double down on. Um, I think there's there's so much there to chew on. I think you've done a really good job of highlighting what it's like to surgically reconstruct an elite athlete's knee as it pertains to the ACL. So I appreciate that and the knowledge that goes goes on in there. What is it that you want to share with the sports PT community when rehabbing the elite level athletes? knee specifically i mean i don't i don't think that the rehab itself is necessarily that different i think communication becomes that much more important because there are a number of different players that that communication is important with when you get someone at that level of sport so um you know you just have to have good communication uh and i don't think that the that the goals are necessarily that the timeline changes at all. It's largely, you know, it's biology, which is not any different. It's rehab, which, you know, having good access, access to really good rehab makes a huge difference. But it's really just like having open lines of communication and making sure that everybody kind of understands the treatment, the expected timeline, um, and, and, you know, what needs to happen at different stages to kind of move forward with things. I think, that's the important thing, but but I don't think I don't think in terms of like you know when you when you run when you cut when you twist I don't think that is all that different though between the two and and I always tell people too you know if you really try to push those timelines and and try to accelerate things you're going to really increase the likelihood of taking a big step back or potentially having a, a more significant kind of complication so. Um, you just got to give it time and be patient. And that comes with understanding upfront how the process is going to work and at what time points we're going to, we're going to try to be doing different things. Yeah. So, some, sometimes this is an insurance thing, but when I get a professional athlete that comes in for rehab, they're a workers comp patient. Um, and so that means workers comp is covering their rehab. And that means that that patient is coming in every single day for rehab. And that's actually the conversation that I have with patients that are not NFL athletes. I give them a response when they say, how much should I come in for therapy? I say, here's the ideal. I see you every day and I see you every day for nine months. And that will ensure that you have a better outcome in my experience. That's not really reality. And so early on, I want to see you X amount, you know, per week. Um, and when it comes to post-op, specifically ACL, it's three times a week to start because I need that extension. Um, but I think that's one difference in our world of how we deal, let's say, with the elite athlete versus um, your recreational athlete. The other thing is you and I spent a lot of time just now talking about surgical um, intervention and then talking about early uh, acute care 
um, and how important range of motion and, and muscle reeducation, which uh, we didn't get into a ton, but is so important early on. Once I start taking weights off the rack to challenge these individuals, I think that's where my game changes a little bit, where I know that I need a certain amount of load to go through that quadricep hip, um, glute stabilizers, and it's going to be more weight for that guy than it would be for a guy like me, right? And so I'm just increasing how much weight I'm grabbing to begin to load them. And then sports specificity, position specificity. What does this athlete need to do every single Sunday in the, in the case of the NFL? Does he need to cut? Does he need to be able to bear a tremendous amount of load as he backpedals like an O-lineman? Their exercises after you get through that acute phase should begin to mimic that somehow. And that I think is really the difference between sports PT and gen pop. PT, um, your general population, where everything is directed and goal-oriented because you know exactly what they need to do for a living. So for us, it's a little bit different. But for you, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the same repair. You're not like tightening it extra tight or anything like that when you put it in there. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there's not really any differences. Now, you, there may be some differences with regard to graph choice, um, uh, you know, potentially the idea of, of how you treat the meniscal tear, uh, it can affect some of those types of things. But uh, in terms of like the reconstructive technique, we I mean, it's based on anatomy, it's anatomic principles of, of where a ligament originates and inserts, it, mm -hmm. it's going to be the same. Um, but, you know, what you do in addition to that, there, there may be some some extra augmentation in in high risk and and the lateral side of the knee is a good example just in the highest risk individuals that potentially has some big advantage versus maybe in in folks who are at lower risk but i, I couldn't agree more about the need to really tailor the physical therapy as you get more in out of the initial phase and more into strength and agility that 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 really needs to be focused on the athlete, not just at the professional level, but even in our in our everyday patients. I mean, you know, for someone in their 40s who wants to get back to, you know, moderate activity and is having some some in instability in their knee and undergoes reconstruction, their rehab at that point is going to be different than a 17 or 18 year old that's trying to get back to play volleyball or basketball. Um, that older athlete really doesn't have a lot of, there's not a lot of reason for that athlete to be doing high impact activity early on, particularly if they have a meniscal problem or, you know, we take all those things into consideration. So it, it's going to be specific to the athlete. Um, but I agree at the early stages, it's, it's pretty similar. It's motion. It's all about motion, edema control, getting the quad to fire. Um, that's going to be the same for, for all those different athletes. And extension, like you right. mentioned before, right? We exactly. Get extension early. Um, so the good news is, to this sports PT population, they're going to be able to learn a ton through our new continuing ed seminars, which Dr. Dries is going to be really highlighted in um, from the surgical procedure side um, and also on, on that rehab side, really highlighting exactly what you need to do day one all the way through month nine. I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome and, and really eye-opening. I uh, look forward to learning way more from you in the future. Thanks, Yoni. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. If you'd like more information on today's episode, please visit us online at truesportspt.com. True Sports, what sports rehab should be.